0: Mark chapter 3, 7 to 19 it says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain, called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons." He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his bro- the brother of James, whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you that you are not only the one who heals our wounds and delivers us from the evil one, Lord, but you call us to yourself. And so, God, I pray that today as your name is exalted, as your name is lifted high in this place, that you would do just that, that you would call your people to yourself, that you would call people who do not yet know you to yourself. And that you would deliver us from evil. The enemy, we just declare in this place, the enemy has no place here. The enemy has no right here. The enemy's words will not be heard here. Your word, oh God, will you speak to your people? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, A.W. Tozer wrote one of my favorite books called Knowledge of the Holy, Knowledge of the Holy is one of my favorite books because it is some of the deepest theology, deepest truths about God, but presented in a way that makes your heart sing, presented in a way that is so devotional, so intimate, so leads us into the presence of God. And he starts his book by saying, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. It's been said that you are what you eat, but rather you are what you worship. You are what you follow. You become like the thing that is most important to you. For some of us, that's food but may it be Jesus that if we worship Jesus that we will become like him we will imitate him we are with him that we might learn from him and become like him we're following God and so the most important question that anybody can ask themselves today the most important question that all of us can continue to ask ourselves day in and day out is who is God Who is God? There are so many competing views of God in the world. There are so many competing narratives about who God is and how he acts and how he relates to his people. There are so many. That we need to ask people when they say that they don't believe in God, we need to ask them to define and describe this God that they do not believe in because chances are the scriptures do not teach that God is that God that they don't believe in. I might not believe in that God that you don't believe in either. I believe in Jesus. There's so many competing views. And so, in his gospel, Mark has been leading us into an encounter with God through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is on the scene. He's saying things that only God can say, he's doing things that only God can do. And the question ringing throughout each scene in the gospel is who is Jesus? Who is this man? Who is this man that heals? Who is this man that has authority to cast out demons? Who is this man who does the things that only God can do? And we get to watch the understanding of the people unfold throughout each scene. And in our passage today, we read about three specific groups that have an encounter with Jesus. And in these encounters, these encounters reveal what the people believe about Jesus. See, if you've ever heard anything about Jesus, then you have had the opportunity to begin forming an opinion about him. Whether you believe or disbelieve or are still investigating, the opinions and beliefs that we are forming will have massive implications, will have massive implications for how we live and how we relate to God. Because what we believe affects the way that we live. You knew that you were going to be around people today. You believed that. You believed in faith that people were going to show up to church, so you brushed your teeth. Or maybe you're allowing the mask to do that for you. Who knows? It's going to block it, so I'm going to be lazy. What we believe changes the way we live. And so the opinions we're forming about Jesus will have massive implications for how we live and how we relate to God. And so we can learn a ton from Jesus' interactions with each of these three groups. The first group that Mark describes, he calls the great crowd. See, Jesus is consistently followed by a crowd. There's always a crowd of people. Most of the time in the gospel so far, this crowd is formed from people within the community where Jesus is preaching. But now the crowd is coming in from out of town. People are commuting to see Jesus. The news is spreading and people from outside Galilee are beginning to hear about this man who has power. This man who heals. This man who casts out demons. The crowd is attracted to Jesus because they have need. The crowd is coming to Jesus because they believe that Jesus can help them. They've heard of what he can do. He's healed people with fevers and other various illnesses and leprosy and physical deformities. And he's set free people who are suffering from demonic oppression. This man has the power to heal. This man has the power to change their circumstances. And so they come to him because they believe that he can help them. They come to him because they want something from him. And often... It's our need or an awareness of our need that first attracts us to Jesus. Maybe you have heard about what Jesus can do for you. Maybe like the crowd, it was in hope of receiving something from him that first brought you to him. Even for those who are raised in the church, For those who are raised in the church, never knowing a time in their life where they didn't know Jesus, oftentimes they still encounter a season in their life where they are more intimately acquainted with their need, with their deficit, with their desperation. And so though they have always known Jesus in those seasons of need, God draws them nearer to himself. Maybe you weren't raised in the church, but you recognize today some deficit some pain, some need that you have in life. You came maybe today in hopes that the stories you've heard about Jesus are true, in hope of healing or freedom of some kind, in hope of being loved and accepted as your Christian friends tell you that you will be. Despite your sin in Christ, you can be loved and accepted and be a child of God and be welcomed into his household. Many times God leads us to Jesus by making us aware of some need that we cannot fulfill or find it fulfilled in anything else. How often do we continue to run to things to satisfy us, whether it's, Addictions, substances to, to numb the pain or, or uh, shopping, buying a new thing to, to help bring some excitement back into our lives, whether it's a new romance or a new relationship, whatever it might be, we continue to run to these things that are not Jesus in order to satisfy us, and it's like drinking salt water. It just leaves us thirsty, and so we need another new thing. We need another new season. We need another thing to satisfy us and it can not satisfy. And so what are we searching for today? What are you here searching for? Jesus will either satisfy your longing or he will change your desires and then satisfy those. Because God is a God who satisfies. We are satisfied in him. But we need to be careful Because if we only come to Jesus when we need something, then when we no longer experience that need, then there's no longer a need for Jesus. Maybe you've got people in your life who are like that, right? Who only come around when they need something. There's seasons in life where they are completely absent And then they come when they need something from you. We can treat Jesus this way. We come to him when our needs are particularly unbearable, but when we no longer have that need, then we no longer need Jesus. And so we treat Jesus as just a giver of advice or some wealthy benefactor that we come to when all else fails. Now I'm really in trouble. I've tried everything, so let me try Jesus. And we can risk treating him that way. And so the crowd in the Gospels comes to Jesus. They come and go based on what Jesus can do for them. And when Jesus no longer meets the needs of the crowd, when they, he no longer meets their expectations, they no longer gather to him for hear, to hear his teaching. They no longer gather to him for healing, but they gather together outside of Pontius Pilate's office and call for him to be crucified. This is how the crowd treats Jesus. If you can do something for me, Jesus, then I will sing your praises. But the minute you stop being what I expect you to do, crucify him. This is the crowd. Wherever Jesus is preached, there will be a crowd. But being part of the crowd is not what justifies us. Coming here today is not what justifies us because as we see in Mark's gospel, there are demons in the crowd. There are unclean spirits in the crowd. Mark says that Jesus is regularly approached by unclean spirits. We've seen this before in Mark. They're demons, spiritual beings who have rebelled against God and rebelled against his plan for creation and humanity. And they repeatedly fall on their knees before Jesus and cry out, you are the son of God. But Jesus commands them to be silent. Why the secrecy, Jesus? Why Why command them to be silent? They're, they're speaking the truth. They're telling people who you are. Why would you silence them? See, though their words are true, it is not coming from a place of commitment to Jesus. Though their words are true, their, their lips may declare his identity, they, their entire being, their entire existence, opposes Jesus, and so Jesus doesn't want the confession of his identity coming from those who are opposed to everything he came for, and so he keeps them quiet. See, there are people in this world who will proclaim the name of Jesus and then call people into supporting things or being a part of things or promoting things that Jesus is not for, that promote things that are actually against Jesus, and though I believe in the freedom of speech, I pray that they will be unable to find an audience, that no one will listen to them. Jesus will silence even true things about himself if they are coming from an unclean spirit. And so he keeps them quiet. There's an interesting comparison in this scene between the crowd and the unclean spirits. And I just want you to picture this for a second. Imagine... Coming into a place where people are clamoring for Jesus. They're just desperate for Jesus. They're trying to get to Jesus because they believe that Jesus can help them. And you walk in and you see people clamoring for Jesus. And there's people there who are declaring his identity as the son of God. You might be tempted to think that that's a thriving church. But a church isn't healthy only because of what they believe about Jesus. A church isn't healthy because of this intellectual assent to who he is and his identity. A church is a thriving church if the people in that church are actively following Jesus, giving their lives to to Jesus, obeying Jesus. They're not saved by their obedience, but their obedience shows that they want to embody his way of life. They want to become like him. They worship him. They love him. They want to learn from him, be with him, and become like him. So the crowd believes that he has power and authority but they come and go as they please and the unclean spirit knows who he is but are actively opposed to his mission and as a church, we're not just called to pursue an intellectual knowledge about Jesus. We're called to follow him and to follow him together, inviting one another and inviting Carpinteria, the coastlands and the nations to follow him with us and to find their delight in him. We're called not only to believe things about him but to entrust ourselves to him and to live for him with all of our lives. We're called to be disciples. While the crowd comes because they want something from Jesus, the disciples come because Jesus desires them and calls them. Do you know that Jesus desires you? He's not standing there with his arms crossed waiting, we'll see what they do. If they come to me, then maybe, maybe I'll give them some, the time of day. No, Jesus desires you. He desires you to come to him, and so he calls. He invites you to come to him. It says he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Now, the interesting thing is, is we don't know much about the disciples at this point. We know their names and some nicknames and some fun little things in scripture that, you know, the reason Jesus maybe called them the sons of thunder, because they tried to call down fire from heaven on the Samaritans. We don't know much about what they believe about Jesus, but we know this they must believe that he's worth following. Because some random person called them and they, they followed, they believe that he's worth following. Some of them leave everything to follow him. They leave their careers, they leave their families to follow him, to learn from him, and to embody his teaching, to become like him. And so this is the difference between the crowd and the disciples. See, a crowd is like those who listen to Mozart, when the mood strikes them. They they listen to Mozart, they appreciate Mozart, and so they'll listen to Mozart. But the disciples are those who train and study under Mozart to learn how to play like him and compose like him. One is a consumer that comes and goes as they desire. The other is an apprentice who carries on the master's legacy. Discipleship is a call to apprentice under Jesus See, some in the crowd are consumers, some in the crowd are devils, but Jesus is looking for disciples. And as disciples, first and foremost, they are called to be with him. He calls them that they might be with him. Before the disciples are called to do anything for Jesus, they are simply invited to be with Jesus. This is the most fundamental aspect of the life of a disciple of Jesus, that they are with Jesus. If you have trusted in Jesus, then God has poured out his Holy Spirit upon you, and you are with Jesus. Jesus. Regardless of how you feel, the presence of Jesus dwells within you and he will never leave you nor forsake you. That if you are a disciple of Jesus and he is with you and he invites us to celebrate his presence by spending time in his word and in prayer and in meditating on scripture and in worship and just recognizing and thanking him for his presence with us. We are called to be with Jesus. See, these 12 disciples will eventually go into the outermost parts of the known world, and they will spread the gospel of Jesus, and they will plant churches. In fact, you can trace the existence of every church in the world from the mission of these 12. They went and they planted churches that planted churches that planted churches that planted churches that planted reality carpenteria. that planted churches. We can find our legacy, our history, our family. We trace it back to the work of these disciples. But before they were called to do any of that, they were called to be with him. Their ministry must flow from their intimacy with Jesus. Likewise for us, our ministry, the things that we do for God, flow out of being with God. And it cannot be reversed. It cannot be the other way around. We cannot be like Pharisees who believe that we are entitled to the presence of God because of our righteousness, because of our good works, because of our church activity. Most importantly, we are invited to be with Jesus. This intimacy with Christ is the foundation from which the disciples will be called into their ministry. While the crowd is coming to Jesus to receive what he can give, the disciples come to Jesus to get Jesus, to be with him. It's not wrong to come to Jesus to get what you need. He satisfies. It's not wrong to come to him because of what he can provide, whether it's provision or healing or wisdom or comfort or eternal life or whatever else. God delights in giving good gifts to his children. God wants to give you good things. It's not wrong to come to him for what we need. But these gifts are only passages through which we experience the one who gives these things to us, to experience the giver, because the greatest gift that God gives is himself. The greatest gift that God gives to his people is himself. And the second greatest gift that God gives to his people is each other. We are called not only to be with him, but to be with him together. We are called to unity. See, these 12 men that Jesus calls to himself will spend three years following Jesus together. They're going to see some stuff but they are called to be with Jesus. And some of them have a lot in common. At least two, there's at least two groups of brothers. Simon and Andrew and James and John are are two groups of brothers. Uh, There's at least four fishermen, if not more. There's a lot of things that they have in common, but there's also a tax collector who we talked about several weeks ago. Additionally, there's one disciple called Simon the Zealot. Now, zealots were a radicalized group of Jewish men who sought to overthrow Rome through violence. There was a group called the Sicarii, and they were named after a sickle-shaped dagger that they would keep under their cloak, and as they walked through the marketplace, they would kill Roman officials or anyone in support of Rome. They were the Zealots. They killed people like tax collectors, people like Matthew. And so Jesus calls two rivals, completely opposites on the political spectrum. One sought to overthrow Rome, and the other one was working for Rome. Jesus calls them to himself natural enemies. In their lives, before being called by Jesus, they lived entirely differently. These men are political rivals, but Jesus calls them to follow him. And so they are no longer defined by their politics. Their identity is in Jesus. In an instant, two men radically opposed to one another are brothers. It doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter what opinions you have or your life before this. It doesn't matter how you voted. It doesn't matter. All of these things. When it comes to Jesus, people who are radically opposed to one another, that on a fundamental level seem to be completely unable to be reconciled, you are reconciled in Jesus. We can look across this room. We see people. We don't know what's going on in their life. We don't know. But if they are disciples of Jesus, then they are your brother. They are your sister. We are a family reconciled and united in Christ. There are some Christians today that are so mad at each other. Some churches today that are so divided over issues of politics and race and COVID and all of these things. And there's important conversations to to be had. There's important discussions to have, but we are not united by agreeing together on all things we're going to have differences. We're going to have disagreements. But this makes our unity in Christ all the more sweet, all the more powerful. Because when the world looks at a difference of opinion, regardless of the conversation, the world wants to divide. And the world cannot make sense of a church that disagrees and yet loves one another and is united in Christ. They cannot make sense of it. But they know that they need it. They know that the world is not supposed to be the way that it Is. They know humanity is not supposed to be divided. They're all looking for ways to solve the problem and they can't, but Jesus has. He has united you to himself. He has united me to himself. He has united us to himself, those who believe. And so he has made peace by the blood of his cross. If you have been reconciled to Jesus, then we are reconciled to one another. God gives us himself in the gospel, but he gives us one another. Praise God hallelujah, we don't have to hate each other. What unites us is so much greater than what, the, what could possibly divide us. We're free to disagree about lots of things, but above all, we are agreed on Jesus. And our unity comes from being with Jesus together. And it's from that place of intimacy. The intimacy that the 12 disciples had with Jesus, that they were called into their ministry. And it is from that place of intimacy that we have with Jesus together that we as a people are called into Our ministry, ordinary people called into extraordinary mission. We are called to be with him, called to unity, and we are called into ministry together. The disciples are called, disciples of Jesus are called into ministry. This doesn't mean that every Christian needs to be a pastor or needs to be a church staff member or needs to have some formal uh, uh, role or platform in the church. Ministry is not for pastors and teachers and staff members. Ministry is for every member of the church. Ephesians 4.12 says that the church leaders are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. If you are a believer, you have been made holy. Saint means holy one, sanctified one. And so if you are a believer, you have been sanctified. You are a saint. If you are a believer, you are called to do the work of the ministry. Our leaders equip us for the work of the ministry, but we are called into that work. And we're called into the work that Jesus is already doing in the world. We don't call in to do something new necessarily or to do something different or to find some untapped area or anything. We're called into the work that Jesus is already doing in the world. Specifically, Mark says that the disciples are called to be with Jesus and they are sent to preach. They're sent to preach. They're called to preach. And so if you have been called by Jesus, then you have been called to preach. You have been called into a ministry of proclamation. Preaching ministry is sharing the same message that Jesus has been sharing, that the kingdom of God has come in Christ, and that men and women are to repent and believe the good news. This doesn't mean that everyone's going to get up and preach a sermon. This doesn't mean that everyone's got to become a street evangelist or learn how to, uh, you know, organize sermons and communicate publicly. It does mean that we need to look for opportunities to speak up and share Jesus with others. To speak up and share Jesus with others. Years ago, I had the opportunity to teach a theology class. It was a 10-week study of the gospel, its implications, systematic theology, what a Christian's life in the church should be. And there was a young woman who attended this 10-week course who had been a Christian for a while, but she had never sought to share her faith. She was fearful that she didn't know enough. She was fearful that if somebody asked a tough question, she wasn't going to be able to give them the answer, and so she was quiet. And she came to this class and she began to, to, to learn about what the gospel is and what Jesus has called her into. And she decided to take a step of faith. And she committed to sharing the gospel with her friends, that she wasn't going to be quiet anymore. And so she just simply, she didn't, you know, get a megaphone and start preaching from street corners and stuff. She just began to tell her friends in her life about Jesus. And I kid you not, in 10 weeks, five of her friends got saved. Five people met Jesus because she opened her mouth and shared. There are people in all of our lives. Look, I'm not going to stand up here as the example of this. There are people in my life that I cower away from sharing Jesus with. It's easy to preach to the choir. It is much more difficult to preach to people you love and respect who you know are going to shut you down. But can we take a step of faith? knowing that Jesus has called us to be with him, that he has called us to be with him together, that we have the loving support and unity of our brothers and sisters in Christ when we get rejected to come back to and they say, don't worry, Jesus was rejected on your behalf. You're good. Just keep sharing the faith. Keep spreading the word. Keep telling about Jesus. Can we take a step of faith? We have no idea what will happen, but I guarantee something will happen because where Jesus is proclaimed, Jesus is at work. And he is drawing people to himself. No matter who you are, if you're a disciple of Jesus, then you are, you are chosen and called to declare the good news to anyone who will listen. And the ministry Jesus calls us into is a heralding ministry. It's an announcement ministry. It's like the old-timey newspaper salesman just making it known that Jesus saves sinners. But this is only part of the ministry. The proclamation ministry is only part of the ministry. These disciples are also given authority to cast out demons. Now, let's understand this for a moment. When we think about casting out demons, we think about the exorcist, right? We think about uh, demon possession, words like that. We think of people who have completely lost control of themselves and are fully manipulated by an evil entity. And this is certainly part of the equation. This is part of that. But it's, it's an extreme part, but it's real. Tell you some stories. But the demonic influence in this world is often significantly more inconspicuous Subtle influences on people and their wills. Lies that are planted in our souls and propagating fears and insecurities and anxieties. These influences from the demonic realm affect believers and non-believers alike. Now, if we want to throw around the term demon possession... A Christian cannot be possessed by anything other than the God of the universe who possesses us through faith in Jesus Christ. You belong to him. Nothing can snatch you out of his hand. You cannot be possessed by another entity, but that does not mean you cannot be influenced by it. Inasmuch as we give ourselves over to be influenced by evil, the enemy will take his foothold. The enemy will take advantage of that we allow ourselves to be influenced he will take it and it will manifest problems in our lives and so maybe you're here today and you recognize things in your life that aren't of you and aren't of God maybe you've been trying to follow Jesus but it feels like trudging through the mud there's just this block that you can't get through. There might be sin in your life that you need to respond to by repentance and faith in the gospel as you learn to follow Jesus and become like Jesus and you shed the weights and sins that are holding you back. But sometimes if you're in this place in your life where you're, I'm repenting, I'm following and I can't get rid of this, it's time to ask for help. And know that there is no judgment, know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and we are here not only to proclaim the gospel, but we are here because we believe that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, and that Jesus has all authority over the demonic realm, and that Jesus gives authority to his church to expel evil. And so we do that together. I was tempted to downplay this today. I really didn't want to get into it. I was tempted to say that, oh, you know, the authority that Jesus gives to cast out demons. Anytime you pray along with the Lord's Prayer, deliver us from evil, you're entering into this authority over the demonic realm. And that's true. When we pray, Jesus, deliver us from evil. We are entering into this spiritual warfare, this spiritual authority that Jesus has given his church over the demonic realm. I do believe that that is part of it. But whether or not it's just an invitation to pray or you find yourself face to face with the devil himself, you are a disciple of Jesus and Jesus has given you the authority to expel the demonic realm in Jesus' name. You are ambassadors. We are ambassadors for Christ. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus, and he uses his church as vessels to do his will. And he does it not only by calling people to follow him and teaching them his ways, but at his death, the fate of the enemy, the overall, overarching destruction of the enemy was sealed. That it's not just something we talk about. It's not just something that Jesus has done, but he has defeated the enemy. You see, one of these disciples, one of these twelve, was an imposter, Judas was a devil. And knowing that Judas would betray him, Jesus still calls him to himself and shares with him the secrets of the kingdom of God. In the night that Jesus would be betrayed by Judas, Jesus still washes Judas's feet, the same feet that would carry Judas out of the upper room and to the, the uh, uh, religious authorities to hand Jesus over to him. Jesus loved him. He called him to himself. He served him. He, he he, 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 he was a disciple. He was with them, but he was not of them. And so Judas hands him over. And on. The cross, Judas' betrayal that eventually led to, to Jesus' crucifixion. On the cross, the Son of God died. The one that the enemy is declaring the existence of, he dies on the cross. And it seemed to be a great victory for Satan. It would have appeared to be a, a victory for the enemy. If the Son of God has come to redeem God's people and he's dead, Satan wins, right? Right? The great irony is that what should have been his victory was his undoing. Jesus on the cross absorbs the sin of the world into himself and accepts the penalty for it. And Satan's greatest weapon, the greatest weapon that the enemy has against the church is accusation. He simply reminds us of our sin, reminds us that we are unworthy and buries us under condemnation. But now, because of the death of Christ and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, when he accuses everything that he might hold in front of us, any sin or shame or fear or anything else has been covered by the blood of Jesus. We have been washed. We have been forgiven. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The enemy has been disarmed. It is in this authority that Jesus has over sin, Satan, and death that he gives his people that gives us confidence that we have that same authority that the enemy has been defeated and we simply walk in that victory. And Jesus rises from the dead three days later claiming that he has not only just authority over Satan but over death itself. And he is alive today. And just like the unclean spirits that fell at Jesus' feet and confessed him to be the Son of God, we know that because of his death and resurrection, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And at the name of Jesus, sin, Satan, and death must bow. Praise Jesus. And all who believe are invited to walk in this victory. All who believe are given the privilege of bearing that name, the name of Jesus and are given the Holy Spirit. And unlike the unclean spirits who oppose Jesus and lead people astray, the Holy Spirit is the presence of Jesus leading us into a greater intimacy, teaching us his ways, empowering our ministry and expelling darkness. The presence of Jesus has this Twofold effect. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16, that it's like the aroma of Christ. He says, But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God, among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. You see, as we follow Jesus together and as we declare the good news and worship Him together, it produces something like a spiritual aroma. Does anybody have, do you have like your favorite smell that's just weird and people are like, why do you like that smell? For mine, it's freshly paved asphalt. It's so strange. But my dad worked for Granite Construction Company. He was a paver operator. And so the smell of asphalt meant dad was home. I've been known to circle construction sites. <laughs> I am not kidding you. Asphalt is to those who, you know, it's, it's life leading to life for me. Others, it's death leading to death. It's a very polarizing smell. <laughs> Jesus has this same effect but the aroma of Christ that pervades and is is emanated from the church to those who are called to Christ, it is glory. It leads to life, but to those who are, 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 are perishing, to those who have rejected Jesus, it's the stench of death. And so when we come together... Our ministry together, it's not some extra thing. It's not just for those who are super committed and so they do all of these other things. You guys, the ministry that Jesus has called us to is worship. That when we come together in his presence together and we exalt his name and we lift him up together, there is an aroma that fills this house. There's an aroma that fills our community. And in our worship, we worship as, as those who invite others to join us and worship him with us. And as we do Jesus' work by the power of the Holy Spirit, he is calling people to himself and he is expelling the enemy. We don't need to do anything different. We don't need to do anything strange or unique. We don't need to do it. We just need to come together and worship. And Jesus does the work. That as Jesus' presence fills this place, Carpentaria, the coastlands, the nations, they will be drawn in. And as we worship Jesus in this place, the enemy cannot stand. He is not welcome here, he does not want to be here, he cannot stand the aroma of Christ. And so we enter into this ministry of proclamation. We enter into this ministry of casting out evil and darkness by lifting our voices and lifting the name of Jesus high in this place. It's not our job to alter the fragrance of Christ. People will water down the gospel they will water down the exclusivity of Jesus. They will water down who he is and what he has claimed, what, what he has accomplished, because people don't like hearing about their sin. They don't like hearing about their need. They don't like hearing that, 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 they're, that they're broken and that they can't do it themselves. And so we'll water it down. Oh, this thing over here, yeah, that's not sin anymore. I know people used to believe that that's a sin, but that's not sin anymore. Don't worry, you do you. You be you. Follow your heart. God wants you to follow your heart. Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. I know you're shipwrecking your life through addiction and, and, and any number of things, but God has a wonderful plan for you, and it's just, just come to church. And it's just watering down the gospel. It's, it's, it's altering the aroma of Christ. It's making it not only no longer a repelling fragrance for those who are not in Christ, but now it's no longer even desirable for those who are. We cannot compromise the truth of who Jesus is and what he has called us to. We cannot water down the gospel. That kind of gospel is no gospel. It has no power because Jesus has been removed from it. We will stand on the authority of the word of God at Reality Carpinteria and declare Jesus to be who he says he is and declare him to be risen from the dead and declare him to be the one who saves sinners, which requires us to declare also that we are sinners and we are in desperate need of Jesus. If you are here and you've not trusted in Christ, then know that coming to him is life. That coming to him is acceptance. That coming to him is love, but you come to him on his terms. And I know that it's scary, but I promise you, you won't regret it. You will not regret coming to Jesus because there is a power in the name of Jesus. And as he's proclaimed and celebrated in truth, and as Jesus is exalted, it brings life to those who receives it. It expels the the, the darkness of those that oppose it. The enemy can't stand in his presence. The enemy has no power in this house. Satan has no place among God's people. His lies and accusations will not be given the floor among the community of God. This is the ministry that he calls us to. This is the ministry that Jesus calls us to. It's a ministry of proclamation. It's a ministry of praise. It's a ministry of power. It's a ministry that calls members of the crowd to be numbered among the disciples. Members of the crowd to be numbered among the household of God. It's a ministry that calls people from death to life. It's a ministry that shines a light into darkness. Reality, this is what we have been called to. This is what we have been called to together and we don't need to wait for it. We don't need to wait another day. We don't need to wait another moment. Now is the time that you are called to ministry, and so you will participate in ministry here in a moment. We are going to worship, and that is ministry. That is declaring the worth and the value and the gospel of Jesus with our voice and exalting his name above every name, and we will do this together now. Welcome to the ministry. Welcome to what Jesus has called you to. We are gonna pray in a second and then we are going to fill the house of the Lord with the praise of his people. We are going to fill this place with the aroma of Christ. We are going to worship at Jesus' feet and watch the enemy flee and watch God draw people to himself. Jesus, we love you. We lift you up in this place. Your name is the name that is above every name. Jesus, we just declare in this place that our knees bow before the name of Jesus, that our tongues confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God, and we long for this place to be filled with the praise of your people, lifting the name of Jesus high. And God, I just pray that in this time as we respond to the truth of your grace, as we respond to the gospel of peace, as we respond to the gospel of the kingdom that calls us out of darkness and into the the, the kingdom of light, God, I pray that we would find ourselves just encapsulated in who you are. Lord, that in this place, as we are together, as we come as individuals and we lift our hearts to you, God, I pray that with one voice we would declare your glory, that you would draw people to yourself, that we would experience your intimacy, Lord, and that you would cast darkness from this place. God, we pray also for this city. We pray for Carpinteria. We pray for the nations, God, that your gospel would continue to take root and expel darkness and that your name would be lifted high everywhere that your name is proclaimed, that you would be glorified. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.